Hebrews 3. So how many photos do you have on your phone? It's okay if you look, because you're going to be wondering the rest of the time if you don't look now. So it's okay to pull it out and look. I looked this week and I realized I had just under 24,000 photos in the photo album on my phone. In fact, 23,987 photos to be exact. They go all the way back to 2002. Uh, many of them are tagged with the locations they were taken in. So I have photos from family trips to Texas and Wyoming, or from missions trips to China and Ireland. I can search through those 24,000 photos by person. That's a little creepy, right? Because I didn't label them. By date, by location. Like this is how my children are growing up with 24,000 searchable photos on your, on your smartphone. This is not how I grew up. So it was, when I was a kid, we took photos on very rare and special occasions, like birthdays and family vacations. So dad would pull out a camera that he only ever used on these rare occasions and had multiple lenses, and then he would make us all pose for a photo. Seven months later, he would finish that roll of film, and he would take it to the store to be developed. And then a week after that, we would go to the store, right, to get the photos, and then we'd flip through them, and that was, that was interesting. My kids will never know how interesting it is to flip through photos from the past year, because a third of them, the heads were missing. So I'm not quite sure why my dad had all of those lenses, and none of them had a feature that made sure the heads of the people that he's taking pictures on were actually in the photo. Another third would be out of focus, and then the final third would actually be in focus. Maybe they were primarily good photos, except for a couple ones that you weren't sure what they were, right? Is that a shoe? Is that a beanie baby? Like, what? there's something that's somewhat out of focus, probably taken by my younger brother. Now, taking photos is much simpler now. We don't carry around a bag with different lenses. We don't buy film. We don't have to wait to see how photos turn out. And we don't have to worry about whether or not the pictures are in focus. Right? Because that, this, was, this was a big deal, was the development of autofocus. In fact, I, I think this would have helped my dad a lot, that in viewfinders. Like, but before autofocus, you had these special marks in a camera, and, and you had to do the work of moving the lens in and out until it was perfectly focused. Now what we do is we hold up our phone, and it recognizes our faces, again creepy, and it focuses it automatically for us, and it has drastically improved the quality of vacation photos. I wish life had autofocus. I think it would drastically improve our days and weeks. If we could just sort of point our life in the right direction and then it would stay there, it would just focus exactly where it needed to be, things would be so much easier. But we don't have autofocus. It's up to us to decide every year, every day, every hour, what we're going to focus on. We're the ones responsible to line up our lives on what really matters. We've been talking a lot this morning about the book of Hebrews, because if you're going to have a conference on Jesus, you're going to talk a lot about the book of Hebrews. And the first two chapters of Hebrews actually remind me a lot of what we've talked about today. They demonstrate so beautifully the glory and wonder of Jesus. They've covered so much of what we've studied. In fact, if you go through Hebrews, in the first two chapters, you learn that Jesus is the exact imprint of God, that he radiates God's glory for all to see, that he created the universe and sustains it with just a word, that he is sitting at the right hand of God until his enemies are vanquished, that he has been crowned with honor and glory, that he has defeated death so that we no longer have to live in fear. 
and that he calls us his brothers. And so after seeing that and reading that and, and, and understanding that in chapters 1 and 2, there is this command at the beginning of chapter 3 which should seem unnecessary. Because chapter 3 begins with the command to consider Jesus, or you could say it to focus on Jesus. I mean, why do we need this command? After all we've learned about Jesus, whether it's through reading chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews or sitting in a conference like this one, why would we focus on anything else? Because we're not point-and-shoot cameras. We don't have autofocus. We're easily distracted. We're often preoccupied. We're prone to being inattentive. And so this reminder is vital that we need to focus on Jesus. In fact, this is connected in chapter 2 to not drifting away to fighting temptation, to battling unbelief, is we line our lives up on Jesus, we bring him into focus, and we keep him there. The writer of Hebrews is a, like a, a teacher the week before final exams, like a coach before the big game, like a conductor before the final performance. He knows how easily get, we get distracted, and so he reminds us to focus on what matters most, to focus on Jesus. So I called Jacob this week and I asked him if I, could, if I could have a little leeway to touch on imitation, but actually think a little more broadly in this final session. To help us as we wrap up this wonderful day of studying about Jesus, right? We've studied about his righteousness, his humanity, his deity, his death, his ongoing work. And I want to end our time with just a simple encouragement, but one that I think is oh so important. It's great to think about these wonderful truths, but we need to be careful not to go home pack them in a box, and return them to the attic. Right? We need to keep our focus on Jesus. So when we focus on Jesus, what exactly does he call us to focus on? Well, he tells us first to focus on his intercessory work. Focus on his intercessory work. We just heard about this from Ben. I want to I talk about it a little different way here in just a moment. But the author of Hebrews, he doesn't want us to forget how Jesus is currently interceding on our behalf. Look at verse 1. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Focus on Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So Jesus has given two titles in this opening verse. One is rare and one is common. The first one, the rare one, is called an apostle. This is the only place in the scriptures that Jesus is called an apostle. What is an apostle? Well, it's someone who's been sent with a message. So Jesus was sent by God to bring us a message. This was the emphasis of Hebrews chapter 1, that Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. Aaron spoke about this earlier, that he came to tell us about God, who God is, what God has done, and since he is fully God, he can reveal God to us in a way that we could not discover on our own. Each day my mailbox is filled with mail. Almost all of it falls into one of two categories. It's either advertisements or bills. A week ago, I had some surprising advertisements. I opened it up, and there were six letters, all from lawyers, written to one of my sons. Apparently, he had got a speeding ticket. I say apparently because he hadn't told me. But be sure your sin will find you out. <laughs> right? So most of these, these, this mail I get is either trying to get me to spend money or telling me I owe money. And so I flip through the stack and it's like trash, trash, bill, trash, bill, bill. But then once in a while when you're flipping through the mail, there's something that catches your attention in the mail, right? It's a, it's a letter or note from a real person. It's actually handwritten, not just computer printed to look handwritten. 
And when I see that letter, I react to that letter the same way every single time I stop. And I look at it. Right? And I actually get a little bit excited about this. And so I set the rest of the mail down or rip it in half and set it down. And then I open up this handwritten note. And I focus on this letter because it's personal. That someone took the time and energy to communicate personally to me. Do you realize God took the time and energy to communicate to you personally? And he did it through his son? That Jesus is the letter God sent to you? Focus on him. Focus on what Jesus said. Focus on what Jesus did. Focus on what God is communicating to you through his son. This is why we make reading his word and listening to his word a priority in our lives. This is why we show up on a frigid Saturday for a Bible conference. Because we see Jesus in the Bible. Every story whispers his name. We read the word to see and savor the supremacy of Jesus. But Jesus is not just an apostle sent by God to us. He is also, as we just heard, the high priest who allows us to communicate with God. These two titles work together. If you think of our relationship with God as a highway, Jesus is the apostle bringing God to us, and Jesus is the high priest bringing us to God. The traffic flows both ways, but it only goes through him. Now this role of high priest is explored throughout the book of Hebrews. We've heard some of it just a few moments ago. Right? We learn, as Ben showed us, how Jesus has opened up the way to God and how he now intercedes with God on our behalf at this very moment. We see how Jesus offered himself as our sacrificial lamb so our sins could be forgiven. And right here, the author doesn't yet go into details about this. Instead, he wants us to see how Jesus is right now standing between us and God. He is speaking to us on God's behalf, and he is speaking to God on our behalf. You see, these early Christians were struggling with whether or not they were going to continue to follow Jesus. Because they had realized that following Jesus brought persecution. If you read later in the book of Hebrews, you learn that there were some who were thrown in prison and others who went to visit them had all of their goods plundered because they visited them. This was a tough time. And so they were wondering, is there a way for us to continue to worship God and remain in God's favor apart from following and identifying with Jesus? Because that's the part that seems to be bringing the trouble. And friends, it is this same desire that drives all false religions. How can I find favor with God apart from Jesus? But there is no other way. Jesus stands between God and man. Only Jesus perfectly reveals God to us, and only Jesus can usher us into God's presence. Apart from Jesus, there is no other way. And this is why the gospel of Jesus demands radical action. Jesus says you must leave everything in order to follow me. You cannot make your own way. You cannot devise your own path. The way to God is the way of Jesus. And so we focus on Jesus and his intercessory work because it's through Jesus that we come to God. Secondly, we focus on his faithful example. We focus on his faithful example. Look at verse 2. Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So the author here compares the faithfulness of Jesus to the faithfulness of Moses. Now this is going to be a very familiar story to these Hebrew Christians, right? The story of Moses. They would have known how Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. 
how he killed an Egyptian and fled to the wilderness, how in the wilderness, as he's shepherding, he sees a bush that's not being consumed by fire. He goes over to investigate, and there God speaks to him and calls him to return to Egypt. They would have known how Moses returned and he, and he stood before Pharaoh and he said, right, so famously, let my people go. How Pharaoh refused and Moses ushered in through God's power the ten plagues on the nation of Egypt. How after the tenth plague he, plague, he led Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea and out into the wilderness. How in the wilderness he went up to Mount Sinai and he received the law from God. And how he faithfully led Israel even as they grumbled and complained against God. So these Hebrew Christians, right, they would have been firmly convinced of Moses' faithfulness. And just like Moses, Jesus was faithful in all God had given him to do. Right, the mission of Jesus paralleled the mission of Moses in so many ways. Both of them spent some of their youth in the land of Egypt. Both were raised up as deliverers of God's people. Both stood before pagan leaders with a message from God. Both miraculously crossed seas. Both fed people in the wilderness. Both delivered a law upon a mountaintop. Both brought God's people out of slavery. Just like Moses, Jesus was faithful to complete the mission God had given him. He was appointed to a specific role and he faithfully fulfilled it. And so, brothers and sisters, I call you to focus on the faithful example of Jesus for two reasons. One, because it assures you that Jesus is going to be faithful to you. Faithfulness is part of his character. Jesus cannot not be faithful. He will never be unfaithful. There is never a moment where you have to wonder or question if Jesus will turn his back on you. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So be encouraged by the faithfulness of Jesus. His faithfulness may be the lifeline you need right now to keep you from sinking in darkness and despair. He is faithful. He will be faithful. The sun will never set on his faithfulness to you. And second, be inspired by the faithfulness of Jesus. It's hard to be faithful, isn't it? It's hard to be faithful when someone betrays you. It's hard to be faithful when someone takes what you do for granted. It's hard to be faithful when circumstances change. It's hard to be faithful when relationships grow distant. Faithfulness is hard. And so focus on the faithfulness of Jesus. Be inspired by his faithfulness to you. So when we focus on Jesus, we focus on his intercessory work, his faithful example, and we focus on his exalted position. Look at verse 2. This is where the author compares Jesus with Moses, but then he changes it in verse 3 by contrasting Jesus with Moses. He says in verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Why does he contrast Jesus with Moses? Because some were being tempted to return to Judaism as a way to escape suffering and persecution. Maybe it was a desire for comfort and ease or maybe it was just feelings of nostalgia that were causing these young Christians to question whether they should turn from following Jesus and maybe they should return to the temple. 
turn from the gospel of grace and, and try again to keep the Old Testament law? Could they turn from Jesus and follow Moses? And the author answers that question by showing how much greater Jesus is than Moses, how his position is far more exalted than the position of Moses. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Accounted worthy is an interesting phrase because it shows intention and deliberation. As if Moses and Jesus have both been set on a scale. And, and the scale falls so fast because Jesus is worth so much more that it's like it's not even worth comparing the two. Right? This goes beyond mere opinion to something concrete. By any objective standard, Jesus is counted as worthy of way more glory than Moses. And he gives the reason, verses 3 and 4, because the builder of the house gets more glory than the house itself. Moses is part of God's house, but Jesus is the builder of God's house. And we all understand the builder gets the glory, not the house he built. He gets the glory because it was his intention and his effort and his work and his sweat and his expertise. It was all of him that brought this house into being. The house did not build itself. The raw building materials did not one day decide we're going to form ourselves into a house. The builder does it. He designs it. He performs the labor. He gets, he gives the effort. So if you invite grandma and grandpa to their grandson's art show, they don't ignore their grandson while raving about his artwork. Now, grandma and grandpa do rave about his artwork, but why? Because he did it. Probably because it's not because it's very good. But he did it. They love it because he did it. The artist gets the glory, not the artwork. If they go to their granddaughter's piano recital, they tell everyone about the best, most beautiful song they heard. And if anyone else heard it, they'd say, eh. But grandma and grandpa love it. She, not the song, gets the glory. The artist, the musician, the builder gets the glory. Now, if you mention Moses and God's house to a Hebrew, he or she would probably think right away of the tabernacle. Because significant portions of the Old Testament law delivered by Moses focus on the construction of the tabernacle. Right? The tabernacle was God's earthly dwelling place, his house among his people. But notice the change from Moses to Jesus. Here we see the earthly dwelling place of God is no longer a tent in the wilderness. It was under Moses. But under Jesus, verse 6 tells us that we are his house. That God dwells in us. That Jesus has built us, his people, into the earthly dwelling place of God. And he rules over us as the Son. While Moses was a steward of God's earthly dwelling place for a time, Jesus is the Son over God's eternal dwelling place Forever, the house of Moses was made of fabric and metal. The house of Jesus is made of flesh and blood. The house Jesus built is comprised of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Brothers and sisters, we are the house of God. God lives in us, and Jesus rules over us. You are part of the house that belongs to God. To walk away then from Jesus is to walk away from God's family. And so this is why he urges us to focus on Jesus. 
to keep from drifting away, you need to focus on the truth that Jesus is bringing God to us and us to God. To, to focus on the faithfulness of Jesus reminds us he will always be faithful to us and it will inspire greater levels of faithfulness to him. And then when we see his, his position as builder of God's people, the son ruling over the house of God, we're determined to stick with him. I see this is what we need. We need to focus on Jesus. Our eyes need to resist distractions, discouragement, and remain firmly fixed on Jesus. When we do this, two things happen. When we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, that we have, what we've done this morning, this is what the results are. First, we are reminded of our true identity. Look at how chapter 3 begins. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Who am I? What's my identity? These are the type of questions we wrestle with all the time. Even when we don't know we're wrestling with them, so much of the struggle and the angst, the uncertainty, the confusion, the despair we feel is, comes back to these questions. Who am I? Like, what's my identity? And so, we attempt to answer these questions by looking to what we do. We look to our job for our identity, like I'm an engineer or an electrician, a school teacher, salesman. Maybe we look to our relationships for identity, right? I'm a husband or wife, I'm single, a grandparent, parent, son, daughter. Sometimes we look to our appearance for identity. I'm fat, I'm thin, I'm tall, short, I'm pretty, I'm ugly. We look to our accomplishments for identity, that I've succeeded here and I've failed there. I've won here and I've lost there. We can even sometimes look to our sins for our identity. But our identity does not come from what we do. We are more than our actions. Our identity comes from Jesus. And in verse 1, we find three descriptions of our identity. He says we are holy, we are family, and we are called. And each of these descriptions is true of us because of what Jesus did. We are holy. How are we holy? Well, Hebrews 2.17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus made us holy by dying in our place and atoning for our sin. Because of Jesus, you are no longer defined by your sin. He has washed that sin away, and he, he calls you holy. We are family. Well, how are we family? Hebrews 2.11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all of one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus brought us into his family. He made us his brothers and sisters. We are part of the family of God. Because of Jesus, you are no longer defined by your divorce. You're no longer defined by your abusive relationship. Jesus calls you brother. And we are called to heaven. And how are we called to heaven? Hebrews 2.9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus tasted death for us so that we could experience victory over death. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, crowned with glory and honor, and awaits the moment when we are called to join him. Because of Jesus, your future is secure. Right? No one can keep you from receiving what he has promised you. And even if no one on earth knows your name, Jesus does. And he will call you to himself. 
don't know if you've read The Silver Chair. It's one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia. But in the book, the Prince of Narnia is bound by an evil spell, and for 23 hours each day, he forgets his true identity. But each night, the spell is lifted for an hour, one hour. And during that time, he is bound to a silver chair so that he cannot escape. And the witch who casts a spell, we learn near the end of the book, is really a serpent who deceives the prince and holds him captive. And the story is one of Lewis's parables on the Christian life. The serpent will do anything to keep us from remembering our true identity. But his power over us is lost when we remember who we are. And the best way to remember who we are is not for us to stare in the mirror, but to focus on Jesus because who we are is bound up completely in who he says we are and who he has made us to be. So the only way to really know yourself, listen, the only way to really know yourself is to focus on Jesus. And in the light of knowing him, we come to learn our true nature. Let me ask you, if you saw yourself as Jesus sees you, as a holy brother or sister called to heaven, would you ever be tempted to walk away from him? So we fight the temptation to walk away by focusing on Jesus, seeing who he in his grace has made us to be. The second thing happens when we focus on Jesus is that we are motivated to hold on. We are motivated to hold on. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So when, when do we hold on to something tightly? Well, we do when we feel like there's danger, right? So you're, you're walking, you're a mom walking with your child through a dark, deserted parking lot. And what happens? You, you squeeze your child's hand a little tighter. Or maybe you're on the back of a motorcycle and all of a sudden the traffic starts to pick up around you. And so like you wrap those arms a little more firmly. Or maybe this happened to you like it has to me, you're on a ski lift. And at the highest point, it comes to a grinding halt. And it starts to sway a little bit. And I hold on. Right? There's danger in drifting away from the truth. I mean, it's possible if you're just in a conference like this and in the future deny Jesus. And so what do we do? We hold tightly. But what are we holding tightly to? It says we're holding tightly to that which gives us confidence, verse 6. We, we hold tightly to that which we can trust in. And so we hold tightly to Jesus. He is our confidence. He is our hope. He is strong. And so we boast in his power. And so we say, listen, when I'm holding to Jesus, nothing can harm me. No devil in hell can attack me. No power of darkness can prevail. Because Jesus will sustain me. Jesus will secure me. Right? We are his house. We are his dwelling place. So we hold tightly to him. We hope in him. We find confidence in him. We don't let go of him. A few years ago, our church went through a year-long catechism together. And we, we learned all the questions. But the first one really stuck with me. That says something about me or the question. But 
This was the very first question. What is our only hope in life and death? And the answer was that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our only hope, so we hold tightly to him. What are you holding tightly to? Because we hold tightly to our independence. We hold tightly to our rights. We hold tightly to our prejudices. We hold tightly to our time, our money, our energy. We hold tightly to our reputation. We hold tightly to our plans. We hold tightly to our freedom. We hold tightly to our likes and dislikes, our pet peeves and preferences. We hold tightly to our opinions, even when we know we're wrong. We hold tightly to our traditions and celebrations. We hold tightly to old jokes and comfy shoes. We hold tightly to family photos and good books. Right? There are so many things we hold tightly to. Are you holding tightly to Jesus? Is he your confidence and hope? Is your boasting in him and what he has promised you? Now, you cannot hold tightly to Jesus if your hands are filled with many other things. And so, what is it you need to let go of if you're going to hold tightly to Jesus? Jesus is our only And so the more we focus on him, the more motivated we will be to hold tightly to him. Helen Lamel was not only a devout Christian, she was an accomplished musician. She got married at the age of 43. A few years later, she was diagnosed with a condition that would eventually lead to her blindness. Her husband couldn't handle the prospect of caring for her, and so he took off and he left her on her own. But Helen did not let her circumstances prevent her from serving Jesus. When asked how she was doing, she would usually respond, and I love this, she would say, I am fine in the things that count. So one of the things Helen liked to do is write poems. And then she would use just a small keyboard to pluck out simple melodies, and she would turn her poems into songs. And she had friends that would come, and they would actually help her by writing down the lyrics and the melody. And One of the simple songs Helen wrote begins with a couple questions. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. And here, I love this, here's the answer for a weary and troubled soul penned by a blind songwriter. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Listen, we have taken her advice. We have turned our eyes on Jesus today. I just want to commend you that you're here. Maybe you're here intentionally. Maybe you're here because Jacob threatened you, but I'm assuming you're here because you wanted to turn your eyes upon Jesus. And, and these brothers have served us so well because they've helped us think about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he continues to do for us. But you are going to leave here in a few moments, and you're going to step out, and you're, hopefully you're going to survive the walk to the car, But then life's going to start coming at you, right? And you're going to be tempted to turn from Jesus and get back to the business at hand. And so I just want to end by encouraging you to be intentional about focusing on Jesus. 
in the battle against unbelief, in the fight for faith, when your soul is weary and troubled, when all around you is darkness, turn your eyes upon Jesus. When you focus on Jesus, the distractions and discontentments, the trials and temptations will grow strangely dim. His glory and grace grow brighter as you focus your attention and affection on him. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we come to you rejoicing in Jesus. We rejoice that we are in Christ and that you have chosen us to pour out grace on us and that we are discovering, Lord, in, in a small way because of our sin and our blindness and we will discover in, a, in an eternal and unmitigated way for forever and ever more of the riches of your glory in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. Because we will sit here right now at the end of this conference and we will affirm how wonderful Jesus is. But we know our hearts enough to know that we're going to be tempted today and tomorrow and this week and this month to start to turn away. To turn our eyes to the things of this earth. To turn our grip away from holding tightly to Jesus as our hope and confidence and security. And instead holding tightly to so many other things. Our plans and our desires, and our goals, and so much more. And so, Father, help us. Give us grace to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to consider Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And he did it for us. So, Father, help us to grow in our love and affection for Jesus as we focus our eyes on him. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.